All right, let's turn to Acts 20, uh, 1, 21, 17 through 26 today. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you for wisdom. Uh, you've promised if we ask for it, you will give it to us. We recognize uh, wisdom doesn't come overnight, but ordinarily through experience, through trials and constant practice, discerning good from evil. Uh, so we may not uh, buck against your discipline. May we learn with patience to endure whatever pains or difficulties you place in our way that we might learn wisdom. God, teach us to exercise discernment so that we might speak truth with both clarity and grace. May we learn to show deference to our brothers and sisters while never compromising on the truth. Help us, we pray, to learn these things well so that we, your saints, in this time and this place might live out what our Lord Jesus said, that we would be known by our love. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 21, 17 through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when he had heard it, they glorified God when they had heard it. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Uh, this principle here, I think, is put on display in this chapter or this passage uh, by his willingness to lay down his own rights and freedoms. Paul places the edification and the peace of the church above himself. And he thereby throws a, a pail of water on what could have been a fire in the church at Jerusalem. Remember, throughout this book, we've seen various attacks, both blatant and subtle, on the church. 
the devil uh, savors disunity in the church. But by the wisdom and humility of these men that Christ has placed as leaders in his church, uh, they were able to seek peace in a difficult situation. Situations are often more complicated than they first appear, and this situation is no different. And in fact, I think this situation is more complex than we can know from this short passage. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, but let's begin by just taking a a look at the setting so we can get a sense of the complexity of the situation. Uh, Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now, why is that notable? Um, to be sure, there's, it's notable because there's a warmth, a brotherly uh, affection for one another. They're happy to see each other. Uh, but at a second glance, it's more complex than meets the eye. Paul rolls into Jerusalem around 57 to 59 AD. And what's happening in Judea during this time? The Roman emperor, uh, Claudius, had appointed a free, a freedman, which is a former slave, as the governor of Judea. His name is Antonius Felix. We're familiar with him. Later in Acts, we'll bump into him again. Um, and Tacitus, the Roman historian, said of him, Antonius Felix indulged in every kind of cruelty, immorality, wielding a king's authority, with all the instincts of a slave. He was not a good governor. In fact, crime was skyrocketing. It was not a good time in Judea. Uh, The high priest at this time was Jonathan, and he apparently had some influence and and impacted actually Felix being placed in that position. He's also quite critical of Felix to the point that Felix hired one of his closest associates with a great sum of money to hire assassins who took daggers in their cloaks into the temple and assassinated the high priest. So just to be clear, the Roman provincial governor assassinated the Jewish high priest. That's what's going on right now. This happened in 58, so this may have been just before Paul's arrival or just after, depending on when he he showed up. Um, But this is the kind of tension that's in the air in Judea, and it's only really a a little over a decade until 70 AD when the Jews will revolt and be squashed by the Roman boot. Um, And so this was a time of, of dissatisfaction at being under the Roman thumb, and nationalism was boiling over, and suspicion of Gentiles was pervasive. And in walks Paul with his Gentile friends, lodging in the home of a Gentile from Cyprus, uh, with good news about God's work among the Gentiles, with a gift collected by the Gentile churches. So I don't think it's a small thing that it says the brothers welcomed us gladly. As Paul meets with James and the other Jerusalem elders, he tells them the stories of what God has done on his third missionary journey among the Gentiles. And notice how Luke phrases it. He says he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, 
they glorified God. Here's Paul, perhaps the most faithful missionary ever, thousands of miles traveled, extraordinary persecutions, and yet at the end of the day, it's God who gets the glory. It's God's ministry, and they worshipped and glorified God together. But it's important to understand that these Jerusalem elders and the rest of the Judean church are sort of caught in the middle between rising nationalistic tensions and a sincere desire to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. But at the end of the day, they rejoice. They rejoice with Paul. They praise the Lord for all that God has done among the Gentiles. But Paul's presence there is not without complication. Uh, they say to Paul, look, this, this wonderful thing has happened. These literally many thousands, in fact, I think the original might say tens of thousands um, of Jews have believed. They're Christians. And these Jewish believers are zealous for the law. And there's this rumor going around that you tell Jews who live among Gentiles not to keep the Mosaic laws, not to to circumcise their children, not to follow our customs. And so what are we going to do about this problem? And by the way, the phrase zealous for the law um, probably refers to zealots. Um, The it's it's a phrase used a number of time in Maccabees in connection with the Maccabean revolt. And uh, Mattathias says to his son and first sons in, in Maccabees, Now, therefore, my sons, be zealous for the law and give your lives for the covenant of your fathers. So this is not merely a uh, we like the law or we want to follow the law, but this is nationalistic zeal in all likelihood. So this is not a small problem. How are they going to deal with this tension between intense nationalistic fervor among the Jews who are tired of the Roman oppression on the one hand and who who care about their Jewish heritage. And on the other hand, the joy and freedom of Jew and Gentile alike being freed in Christ from the ceremonies of the law and the church's international commitment to bless the nations through the gospel. Really, this, this ship, this church in Jerusalem could tear apart tear itself apart by these tensions and I'm sure the enemy at this point is quivering with excitement about the possibility so the elders at Jerusalem they propose a solution to the problem and in short it's a show of goodwill uh, and cultural sensitivity that Paul should publicly engage in some these Jewish rites They say, we have these four guys, they're under a vow, so go to the temple, purify yourself with them, pay their expenses, and everyone will know the rumors are not true, um, and and the peace of the church at Jerusalem will be preserved. They're quick to add here, of course, we're remembering uh, Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. The letter was sent out to the Gentiles that they don't need to keep the Jewish customs to be saved. They just need to stop with their idolatrous practices. And we get that the customs and ceremonies are not salvific, but just for the sake of the peace of the church, let's do this, to undertake this action. And we shouldn't forget that this is Paul we're dealing with here. Paul is not a a wilting, petunia sort of personality. 
We just saw last time, um, even when the Holy Spirit was announcing his coming uh, uh, imprisonment and affliction in Jerusalem, and even when his friends were asking him, please don't go to Jerusalem, what did he say? He said, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's not a person who's overly concerned about what people think. He was human, of course, a sinner, of course, but I don't know about you. I can't think of a single time when Paul caved to pressure. I can think of, like Peter did numerous times, other even apostles did. I don't remember Paul ever doing that. He's a resolute man. And so almost shockingly, in my mind, he says, okay. And he does, he goes through with it. He follows through with this vow. It's not clear exactly what the vow is. Um, probably a Nazarite vow, the same as uh, what Samson was under, because it says they were going to shave their heads. Um, but also, it may have been some kind of purification rite. It's customary, it was, to, to when people arrived back in Jerusalem to purify themselves after they had been in Gentile lands. Um, and remember, Paul was trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, so these four men may have been travelers there for Pentecost as well. So it may have been a uh, a purification rite or Nazarite vow. Uh, In short, though, the thrust of the passage is the same, whatever the vow is, and that is that Paul was willing to engage in the process for the sake of showing deference and cultural sensitivity in order to preserve the peace of the church. I don't know about you, but that that left me with some questions. First of which being, does Paul not teach the abrogation of the Mosaic laws and ceremonies? I mean, is the rumor not true? They point to circumcision, so we could use that as an example. Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians 7, 18 and 19, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. In Galatians 5.6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And again, Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So doesn't he teach the abrogation of of circumcision? Well, we have to do what it seems that the rumor mill in Jerusalem was not doing and interpret Paul accurately in context. Is he saying circumcision in all circumstances is evil and should never be done? No, he's saying, in context, circumcision is not a necessary work for salvation. And in fact, if you accept circumcision as a means of trying to please God, then you have to keep the whole law. So circumcision counts for nothing before God. And people, therefore, are free to circumcise or not. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. So Paul was dead set against the law as a means of earning favor with God. And by the way, if you follow Paul's 
argument in Galatians. It's not just now, as Michael was mentioning during Sunday school, but it's never been a means of salvation. That salvation has always been by grace through faith. This is why Paul is willing in Acts 16 to circumcise Timothy for the sake of not offending the Jews so that the gospel would not be hindered as they go to the Jews. And yet, at the same time, when men in Jerusalem tried to make Titus be circumcised, Paul says in Galatians 2, 3 through 5, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So I think Paul would say to the Jews among the Gentile uh, lands, No, you don't have to circumcise your child. You may if you wish, but understand it's not required. The bloody sacrifice has been paid by Christ, and the sign is fulfilled in the cleansing of our heart by the blood of Christ. I also think that as he's in Jerusalem, among Christians of nearly exclusively Jewish heritage, in a season when national, Jewish nationalism is heating up, he might have said the same thing, but in wisdom he might have said, now is not the time to press this particular point. This is what I think they mean in 23 when they say, thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance to the law. Uh, it's not that Paul is always living his life in observance to the Jewish ceremonies. Um, he's, he's constantly among Gentiles, eating Gentile food, it would seem. Uh, he's, he, he doesn't seem to always be following the Jewish ceremonies. But by participating in this ceremony, he shows that he doesn't hate the law, and he's still willing to participate in the cultural activities intrinsic to his own heritage. And he says as much about himself in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 19 through 23. He says, though, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." I do it all for the sake of the gospel. So Paul is not afraid to to adjust his his methodology in order to present the message that he has. um, And yet without compromise. So where does that uh, leave us then? I've 
three exhortations for us today. And the first is that we should stand resolute on the truth of God's word. Some people will use the kind of uh, weaker brother argument to make all kinds of compromise. And in truth, that is actually a lack of clarity and boldness and actually a lack of love toward people when we do that. For example, we do not attend a gay wedding out of cultural sensitivity in order to to win an audience for the gospel, right? Because attending a gay wedding is in complete contradiction to the gospel. It doesn't love those people. It doesn't communicate the gospel to them well. Um, So that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about um, changing or adapting ourselves to our situation, It is perfectly legitimate to adapt our methodology to clearly convey our message to our audience. But when our methodology conflicts with the message we're preaching, we must stand on the side of clarity and conviction on the message and not shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God. So that's the first exhortation is to stand resolute on the truth of God's word. Second exhortation is to be flexible where you can be flexible. Some of us have a problem with standing resolute. Some of us have a problem with flexibility. Sometimes we're so inflexible, we think that everything is an occasion for my soapbox. And as Americans in particular, we are very focused on our rights. I have a right to do that. Well, Paul had a right, technically. He could have held an open pit pork barbecue session in Jerusalem. Invite all of the Gentile friends, invite this Jewish Jewish church, come to my barbecue, bring potato salad and pickles, kosher or not. He could have said, no, I'm not doing this, this silly vow stuff. Who cares what these Jewish Christians think? They're wrong, they don't get it, that's their problem. I found this great quote. Uh, Daryl Bach quoted John Stott, who was quoting F.F. Bruce. So I hope it's not a, a telephone game sort of situation, but it's very helpful. So Bruce says, A truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. A truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. That means we don't have to exercise every right that we have at all times. We don't always have to make a resolute stand on every point of personal conviction. Understand that the men in this story did not need to make this vow. Or the the weaker brother in Romans 14. um, The weaker brother is missing something. His faith is weaker than the stronger brother. He's deficient in some sense. In other words, we want the weaker brother to not be weak, to be strong. But there's room in Scripture, and it's not compromised, to treat such a person with patience, and even to bend to their level and to help them along. As Paul says in Romans fourteen nineteen, he said, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I think that could summarize the whole of this sermon. 
So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So stand resolute on the truth of God's word. Be flexible where you can be flexible. And third, let the peace of the church and the advancement of the gospel be your guide. Let the peace of the church and the advancement of the gospel be your guide. It would be nice if there was a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, solution to these problems. There's not. Uh, each case takes wisdom and discernment. The same thing can be evil in one circumstance and totally fine in another. Uh, circumcision, for example. When do you, when do you go the, the Timothy route? When do you go the Titus route? I think a story I've told it before uh, illustrates the principle well. It's attributed to Sproul, though I don't think it's been verified that this actually happened. But um, he was out to eat with some friends. The waiter came to get their drink orders and asked whether they might want an alcoholic beverage. And one of the ladies at the table said, oh, no, we're Christians. To which Sproul replied, in that case, I'll have a scotch. The point being that the Christians at that table were perfectly free to drink or to abstain. But the moment that that legalism crept in and abstaining from alcohol became an absolute, it became a point of Christian identity. That's when a stand needed to be taken. So that's what I mean by let the gospel be your guide. When is this problem infringing on the gospel and when is it not? Calvin's helpful in the Institutes in the section on Christian liberty. I recommend reading that section. It's a really amazing, maybe 12 to 15 pages. Um, there he makes a distinction that helps us in discernment between when, when do we uh, abstain and when do we partake. Um, he makes a distinction between the Pharisee and the weak. The Pharisee and the weak. And the Pharisees are those who are ill-tempered and legalistic. They are what Calvin calls sinister interpreters who ceaselessly take offense. Some people are like that. They're looking for a reason to be offended. That's the Pharisee. We are never to bend to the offense of Pharisees. Let them be offended. Matthew 15, Jesus said, uh, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. Uh, has not planted, will be rooted up. Let them alone. Let them be offended, essentially. So that's the Pharisee. The weak, on the other hand, are those who, who just don't get everything yet. They're the sapling Christian. They, they may easily bend and break if we're not gentle. It's tempting to be frustrated with people who are weak, forgetting from whence we came. How long did it take you to wrestle, for example, with the doctrines of grace? We get so frustrated. I can't believe they. I, can't believe they, I wonder if they're even Christians. 
or your convictions about worship or any other issues that are important and profoundly biblical, but they take time. We don't expect children to become adults overnight, so we need to be patient with them in the same way we should expect sap- we, we should not expect sapling Christians to become oaks overnight. So with the Pharisee, we, we let them be offended. But with the weak, we must be patient for the sake of peace and the edification of the church. And this is what Paul says, continuing what the, the discussion about the weaker brother in, in 14 and 15, uh, Romans 15, 1 through 3. And I'll close here with his comments here. He says, well, my own comments on his comments. We'll let Paul have the last word. Romans 15, 1 through 3. We who, we who are strong have an obligation, he says, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. In other words, I have, I have this saying about food. you got to try stuff. But you also, you got to put up with stuff. That's what he says. An obligation to bear, to put up with. Not just the annoyances, but even the failings of the weak. And to not please ourselves, he says. So this is a process that's painful. It's a process of putting ourselves to death so that we can care for them. And let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself... But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So we can imagine if Christ had only done whatever he had the right to do. If he only sought to please himself. We were not only weak, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. When he condescended to shed his blood... For our sin and to bring us to newness of life so that we childish, complaining, confused, angry, self-seeking people could be brought near into his fellowship. And so that we might be built up and sanctified. And so he, he continues to bear with our weakness. Every day, even when we fail to bear with the weakness of others. So may we learn daily to to live in the freedom purchased by the blood of Christ and so give of it to others as we have opportunity. Amen.